Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Esther, which at this point should not be a surprise to you. We'll pick up on chapter 7. We are coming to the home stretch of the series, but take heart, we're almost there, but there's much that God has in store from, for us from this book. This morning we read chapter 7, all of it, it's 10 verses. Esther, chapter 7, hear this and receive it with faith and with love. This is the word of God for us this morning. Thus says the Lord. So, the king and Haman went to the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I had found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been told, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would, not, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the queen and the queen the king and the queen and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden but Haman stayed to beg for his life from queen Esther for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king and the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman had prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. A life spent shaping a world I want my child to inherit, not one I fear my child will inherit, strike me as a life worth living. Upon my return to San Francisco, I shall pledge myself to the abolitionist cause because I owe my life to a self-freed slave and because I must begin somewhere. Those, of course, are not my words. These are the words of Adam Ewing, one of the main characters of the novel Cloud Atlas, 
a book by British author David Mitchell, whose second mention in a sermon in less than a month indicates the impact it had on me. Anyway, Adam Ewing has just survived an attempt against his life only because a friend, a former slave, defended him when he could not. Adam then decides to dedicate his life to the abolitionist cause. And fearing that it will not go well with, with his future father-in-law, he can already imagine the rest of the conversation. Adam says, I hear my father, father-in-law's response, Ooh, ooh, fine, splendid sentiments, Adam. But don't tell me about justice. Sail to the old world. Tell them their imperial slaves' rights are as, are as undeniable as the queen of Belgium's. You will be spat on, shot at, lynched, pacified with medals, and crucified. Naive, dreaming Adam. He who would do battle with the many-headed hydra of human nature must pay a world of pain, and his family must pay it along with him. Only as you grasp your dying breath shall you understand your life amounted to no more than one drop in a limitless ocean. These words stuck with me because I believe they illustrate pretty well our, our estate when we look at Esther chapter 7. You see, last week we saw that God is the leading actor of the book of Esther. He is the one in charge of history. He's the one guiding all reality. At the book's turning point last week, we saw God's invisible hand moving through the ordinary to save his people. So that should lead us to ask then, why Esther then? Why are Esther's and Mordecai's lives relevant since in the end, God will do what he wants. While God's sovereignty is a comforting doctrine, you might be wondering, why me? Why should I do anything if God is so sovereign? What do I do now? Should I just pray and wait for God to move in his mysterious ways to save the day? As we look ahead and we see between God's invisible hand on one side and the boots of the empire on the other, what are my actions in this world if not mere drops in the ocean we feel? Today, we return to Esther's quarters for another banquet and we see her extremely sharp mind at work and today we will grapple with these questions and we will see that our actions have consequences and how God uses them to achieve his purposes. In summary, this morning, the Spirit of God teaches through Esther 7 that those who belong to Jesus Christ, the good King, boldly work for his cause. Again, this is the central message of Esther 7. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, the good King, boldly work for his cause. We will see that in two points this morning. And the first one that we see from verses 1 through 6 is that those who serve the, king, the good king will live. 
Those who serve the good king will live. Verses 1 through 6. Last week's chapter ended with a cliffhanger. Haman was taken from the presence of his family following a public humiliation scene in the town square. And on top of it, after hearing a sort of condemnation sermon by his own wife. And then he leaves to the second banquet with Queen Esther and King Ahasuerus. And we pick up on chapter 7 after the feast. Of course, they are drinking wine, as they have been doing a lot in this book. And Ahasuerus once again brings up the elephant in the room. What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. Like him, we've been waiting three chapters for her to finally reveal her wish and request. And this is the third time he has said those precise words. There's no turning back now for him. He already promised he would do it. But let's wait just a little bit more. Because we have to understand the task before Esther is way more challenging than we might realize once again. She has not read the end of the book. She has to point the finger at Haman without incriminating the guy who gave him the signet ring to sign that edict. She will also probably have to admit that she is also Jewish and under the the condemnation of the edict, something she has kept, kept hidden from the king for more than five years now. She has to consider that the edict is irrevocable. And she has to convince Ahasuerus to forego 300 tons of silver if he gives up on this plan. She has to accomplish all that with one single request. And more than that, remember, because this will play a part in what she explains to the king, Persia is not a modern-day democracy. The king couldn't care less for the dignity of life, as he would probably put it. Remember, this guy, the king, collects women for his harem and then collects eunuchs to take care of them. As one commentator explains, for Ahasuerus, the empire's needs trumped issues of mere personal freedom. There was no constitutional right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the Persian Empire. Given all of that and that mountain to climb, Esther's phrasing of her request is, at least to me, this book most astute yet beautiful piece of prose. Read again verse 3 with me. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. It is beautiful because look at how she connects all the dots that have been hanging on the air since this book began. Her wish is for her life, and her request is for her people. And again, she's, you should realize that she's not asking for two things, but one, and that's the beauty of it. Esther and her people have become one and the same. To her, her people's lives, it's her life. 
and her people's death is her death. She has irrevocably sided with her people at the peril of her own life. And this all comes back and it is tied again to another dot which is finding favor in Ahasuerus' eyes. This is not mere flourish when she begins talking about it. Esther is tying the fate of the Jews to Ahasuerus himself. If we have a tie, my king, she is saying, then you are bound to all my people now. But wait, there's more she could have said. Esther gives the, gives the reason, the reasons for, for this specific request. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And those are the precise words of the edict. Yet she cleverly explains them in the passive voice. We have been sold and to be destroyed, to be killed. And by doing that, she avoids saying the obvious. If she were to put it in the active voice, she should have said, you sowed me and my people to be destroyed. Like the old prophet Nathan, kindling the wrath of King David before telling him, you are the man. Esther leads the king into this rage highlighted by the cacophony of his words in the original, which Karen Job says sound like machine gun fire when pronounced out loud. And the same emotion is present in Esther's awkward, awkward grammar and repetition of sounds when she answers in the original. To my best efforts, I translated again verse 6 as, He is hateful and hostile, this heinous Haman. And the section then ends with the hateful, hostile, and heinous Haman, horrified. For he knows he has been outsmarted. And there is no backtracking for a hazardous wrath. And at this point, I believe the text invites us to take a step back and look at the big picture of a chapter where life and death hang by a thread to the characters involved. You have to remember, this is not a mere tale of court intrigue in a faraway land. This is the tale of the people of God being preserved from their enemies. Esther and Mordecai represent the entire nation of God. And they will see to an end what their ancestor Saul failed to do. They will see to an end the extermination of the Amalekites the wicked people, enemy of the people of God from where Haman came from. So you look at this and you take a step back and you realize that this is not just some personal vendetta by the family of Esther and Mordecai. This is the story of redemption that runs throughout this whole book. God had promised to Abraham that he would bless those who bless his people, and he would also curse those who curse them. Ultimately, we see it is God who controls the fate of the Jews and the Amalekites. And Esther 7 is a great reassurance 
of that promise. It should bring us comfort. But as we see Esther specifically here in this chapter and with, together with Mordecai throughout the book, as we see them acting toward, towards that go, we are struck by the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Yes, Esther's plan required courage, cleverness, discernment. She displayed all of that to an extreme, just this chapter. Yet, as we saw last week, it wouldn't have this, this, this speech, as beautiful as it is, it probably wouldn't even have seen the light of the day if it wasn't for a royal bout of insomnia. And we see this perfect balance, balance between these two realities of God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the very shape of this book. Esther's incredible feats of courage and wisdom, first her coming to the king in chapter 5 and now this in chapter 7, are balanced on the hinge of chapter 6 where we see the invisible hand of God at work. So on the one hand, as Psalm 127 tells us, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, it, those who build it labor in vain. But on the other hand, and I believe this is implied in the verse, some people indeed must labor and labor a lot for the house to exist. And Dr. Ian Duguid sums it well. God's sovereign act is the turning point. But God works through the faithful efforts of his people just as much as through remarkable providence. And this is something that we have been seeing throughout this entire book of Esther. Friends, Esther 7 reassures us that when we are united to Christ and his people, your efforts matter. And they matter a lot. God uses them. God uses you to accomplish his purposes. Even if the ultimate result comes from his hands, as we've seen. And what a reassuring reality this is. It gives hopes, for example, for our children. As the promises made to them in baptism aren't just about our efforts to raise them well. Trust me, I know this. Our ability as parents is flawed. And they inherit our imperfections. If their faith solely relied on us, they would have little hope. But in baptism, we see that God also enters in a covenant with them. And that's the assurance that what we do for our children here at church will matter for their lives. Speaking of which, this reality of these two things, God's sovereignty and our responsibility, gives us much hope for our churches in general. Our hope here in this building is not on human wisdom, and please, it was not on the skill of our leaders. Genuine transformation through the gospel springs from the Holy Spirit, not from human endeavors. Our confidence rests on God's promise to protect his church. Yet, we both actively share the gospel 
and pray boldly because we trust God's purposes will act despite our flaws and our sins. So we trust in Him and we keep working. And finally, this balance gives us hope personally in our walks before the Lord. Our hope against sin, our own indwelling sin, isn't in our, on our own efforts, but in God's promise of sanctification through the Holy Spirit. Yes, as we mature spiritually, we see, in our, we see our sins more clearly, with more understanding, yet God's Spirit in us, God's Spirit in us is the assurance of growth and godliness, not our efforts. So because of that, not despite it, we strive for holiness and we fight against sin and temptation with confidence and boldness. We go to him as he brings us to him. The book of Esther, friends, reminds us that those who serve the good king, who belong to him, who work for the sake of his people, will live. He will bless those who bless them. Yet the story is not done. Our chapter is not done. There is still evil at large. There's still fierce wickedness working against and resisting the advances of God's kingdom. The edict of destruction is still out there. What shall we think of those things? How do we live then in face of those things? We will see that in our final point. Those who work for the empire will fall. Those who work for the empire will fall. We see that in verses 7 through 10. As we've seen, Esther's words ignite Ahasuerus' anger, propelling him out of the room while Haman stays behind to beg for his life. Let's look at each of these two men in turn. First, why would Ahasuerus walk away? If you say, oh, he was going to think, you know better at this point. Thinking has never been his strong suit let alone take a minute before acting. This whole book probably wouldn't even exist if that was the case. So why would he do that now? Of course, to save his skin. Because the problem is, even with Esther's supremely careful wording, he knows it will be hard to separate himself from Haman in this one. He gave full authority to Haman to do all of that. Can he kill Haman for a plot that he himself approved? If what Haman did was a crime punishable by death, then they have to build two gallows because he committed the same crime. And as maybe for the first time Ahasuerus is thinking in this book, outside of the room, Haman is in a pickle. You see, according to the harem protocols in Persia, no man but the king could be alone with a woman from the harem. 
So to follow that rule that, more, that Haman probably was aware, he would, should either have followed Ahasuerus, which I imagine it would mean him probably dying by the own hands of the king, or he should just plead, plead guilty and run away. Those are his two options besides staying. And while staying can get him killed, staying gives him an opportunity to bag Esther. She's his only hope right now. And as someone said once, for one drowning, any alligator is a log. And the irony in this book reaches its maximum level. As he goes to plead for his life, he falls at the feet of Esther. Let that sink in for a minute. Haman, the proud, who would commit genocide just because Mordecai the Jew would not bow before him, meets his final demise by falling before the Jewish queen of Persia. Ahasuerus comes back precisely to that scene and Haman gives his own head to him on a plate. It is hard, I have to assume, to imagine that Ahasuerus really thought that Haman would try to force himself towards Esther while he was just within walking distance. But nevertheless, this gives the emperor the perfect excuse to kill him for a reason that has nothing to do with a genocidal edict. And then the final ironic nail in the Haman's coffin comes when this guy, Harbona, he materializes out of thin air in the middle of the chapter just to point out, hey, not even here. But let me say this. There is a very high stake just outside of Haman's house. I'm just saying. And as always, the king does what he is told to. And our passage closes with Haman hanging up upon the cursed wood that was built for someone else. And then, and only then, the king's wrath, the text says, is abated. How the tables have turned. In 24 hours, Haman goes from the top of the road to being executed in shame and disgrace. Driven by his pride and arrogance, Haman sought to annihilate the Jews due to his insatiable thirst for power. His plot, fueled by megalomania, was symbolized by the colossal gallows he built, which became his own downfall. And once again, I invite you to look at the big picture. As we saw last week, Haman's wife, Zeresh, foresaw his downfall due to Mordecai being Jewish. This is the other side of our previous point. We are now invited to ponder the relationship between divine justice and human evil. Salvation for the Jews, as we've seen, and now the downfall of his enemies 
are both outcomes of providence, yes. Yet, in the book of Esther, evil is personal. It's not just something abstract. On the one hand, yes, God's plan of redemption entails the annihilation of his enemies. Yet, we also see Haman's self-inflicted damage clearly. No one can deny it. Despite Haman's false sense of security and his influence and riches, he unknowingly but personally seals his own doom. And his life and his death are a dire warning of how human evil deceives us into believing that we can get away from dedicating ourselves to the empire without having any consequences. Despite all his power and influence, all his rise to the top of the empire, Haman's fate was sealed by forces way more powerful than Ahasuerus. Christian, the empire of sin, of the world, and of the devil, will promise you safety, will promise you satisfaction, but it will blind you. Just this week, as I prepared for the sermon, I was driving on Street Road and passed by a van from Amazon. And the back of the vehicle read, Warning, contents may cause happiness. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I have nothing against online shopping, and especially nothing against next day deliveries. Yet, isn't this a very good and precise summary of how we live in this world. As if all our happiness could be packaged and mailed by Amazon. Friends, if we stake our comfort and joy in this world, on things that fit inside an Amazon blue van, we are doomed to a fall greater than Haman's. Yet, we keep doing it. We keep unpacking those boxes on our doorstep, waiting for that very brief rush of satisfaction when we put our hands on stuff that we bought for ourselves. Haman thought he would humiliate Mordecai and his people, but ended up signing his own death sentence. He bragged about having dinner with the king and the queen, not knowing it would be his last meal. And Karen Jobes concludes for us, Suddenly, without warning, the true destiny of human evil is revealed. Destruction by the long-promised justice of God. One last time today then, I invite you to look at the big picture. The big picture to which the last verse of our text points to. Evil is hanged on a tree. On a tree. The wrath of the king whose laws are irrevocable is abated. And God's people have a chance to live another day. Justice is served. 
And what is, we see in this big, the big picture of our text today is that the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to bless those who bless his people and curse those who curse them is found, yes, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we saw in the first point, identification with Jesus Christ leads to a blessed life under God's good providence, yes. Yet Jesus was the one who identified with us first. Like Esther, he identified himself so much with his people to the point of becoming a man and dying the death we deserve, not just running the risk, but actually dying. Because we were enemies of God in all our allegiances to this world. That cursed tree was built to hang us. But God's wrath against his enemies were, was abated when Jesus bore upon his shoulder all our enmity with God and was hanged on that tree. Christ so identified with his people that our death becomes his death, but his life then becomes our life. He is the one who goes to the king of the universe and says, if I have found favor in your eyes, let my life be a ransom for them. My request is for my people whom you gave me. It is only because of this, because he gave us his life-giving Holy Spirit, that we can go then into this world serving him by serving others. We don't work or pray our way into God's plan. No, in God's plan, Jesus works on our behalf. And only then and because of that, we can go and work on his behalf. In the conclusion of Cloud Atlas, Adam Ewing is confronted by his father-in-law with a harsh reality that those who decide to fight the empire for the sake of others will not, cannot make a difference. They will be mere drops in the ocean. Ewing's simple answer is, yet, what is an ocean but a multitude of drops? No matter how small and insignificant your life can seem to the eyes of the empire, if you have identified yourself with Jesus Christ and with his people, yes, yes, you are a mere drop in the ocean of this world. A single enemy who has now turned into a friend. Yet, as we have seen in this last chapters and especially today, what is this world? if not a multitude of drops held in God's invisible hands, used by him to bring glory to his name and blessing to his people. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, our everlasting God, you have safely brought us to the beginning of this day. Defend us in the same with your mighty power, and grant that this day we will fall not into sin, 
neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by your power to do always that which is righteous in your sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose mighty name we pray and together we say, Amen.